Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Our Lady in Doctrine and Devotion, the show dedicated to furthering the knowledge and love of the Mother of God, presented by member-supported Restoration Radio. I am your host, Alexander Krasov, and I am joined by our guest, Father Herman Fleece, professor at Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Welcome back to the show, Father. Hello, happy to be here again. It's great to have you back. Today, we're going to be discussing the sublime dogma of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So why don't we start with the definition, Father? What does the Church mean when she says that Our Lady was immaculately conceived? Good. So, yes, we will start with the, uh, the definition of Pope Pius IX, uh, the essential part of the definition, um, which uh, is dated December 8th, 1854. So in the definition, the Pope uh, defined that the Blessed Virgin Mary was in the first instant of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Christ Jesus, the Savior of the human race, preserved free from all stain of original sin. So this is the meaning of the Immaculate Conception of the dogma. And uh, But I think it will be a good idea to clarify um, some points uh, for our listeners uh, later. Yes, that's certainly a good idea, Father. Could you could you please explain the definition a little bit more for us? Yes, uh, we're going to follow the, the words. Uh, the only thing I will change a little the order because uh, it's more clear in English. So Our Lady, according to the bull, was preserved free from all stain of original sin in view of the merits of Christ Jesus, the Savior of the human race. So here we see that she was preserved from sin not by her own power and right, as it was the case with our Lord, but she was preserved from contracting original sin in a completely gratuitous, that is, free manner, and precisely on account of the foreseen merits of Christ the Redeemer and his passion. So we see already here it's important to notice how the Immaculate Conception, far from detracting in any way from the universality of the redemption by Christ, that is, that Christ redeemed everyone, actually confirms this dogma, because Our Lady, as the Bull teaches, was redeemed by Christ. And the only difference, of course, is that she was not redeemed in the ordinary way, but in a most perfect, in a sublime way. So could you explain that difference a bit more for us, Father? Yes, so there are two ways of redemption, and theologians say, and so the first or the ordinary way of redemption is by remission, uh, remission of and cleansing from sin. And this is obviously the way in which all except Our Lady were redeemed. And the privilege, and that, by the way, means that one does fall into sin. Our Lord allows us to contract sin, and then he cleans the sin from the soul. But... The privileged way of redemption is the one precisely that happened in Our Lady, and it consists not in the remission of sin, but in preservation from it. So this means that God, by a positive intervention, prevented her from contracting that sin, which, unless God had intervened, she would have contracted. And the reason for this is that Our Lady was generated by her parents, in the natural way, and uh, therefore, unless God intervened, she would have a contracted original sin. But the, as we know from the dogma, uh, God 
did preserve, intervene, and did not allow Our Lady to contract even for one instant the original sin. The bull says explicitly that um, that happened in the first instant. That's important. And uh, here we, I would like to remark that uh, the Immaculate Conception doesn't have anything to do with the manner of the formation of the body of the Blessed Virgin. We are speaking about the soul. The body of Our Lady was formed in the womb of her mother, Saint Anne, and she was um, conceived as to the body in the, in the ordinary way of nature. And uh, so we remark that because the only Our Lord uh, was conceived without any uh, any part being taken by by a man, and uh, therefore uh, his conception is a different. Because already, as I just said, the conception of the body was natural according to the natural course, but then that soul that would have otherwise contracted sin was prevented by the power of God to do so. And I will add one more thing is that the definition says that uh, this happened by a singular grace and privilege uh, granted by Almighty God. So the, here the, the thing important to remark is that a singular grace and a privilege especially, this means that her conception was not according to the law of the contraction of original sin, that's obvious, but theologians remarked that not only was it not according to the law, but it was not even merely outside the law. It was actually against the common law. The common law of itself demanded that, that our Lord make a, a privilege for our lady. And this is why Our Lady was prefigured by Queen Esther, right, Father? Yes, exactly. Um, because, uh, as our listeners might uh, recall from the Old Testament, King Asuerus had made a law by which all the Jews would be put to death. And obviously, Queen Esther uh, belonged to, to that race, the race of the Jews. Uh, but she was positively exempted from the general law of death, and this by the free will of the king. And who said to her with great compassion, Thou shalt not die, for this law is not made for thee, but for all others. And this is an, an important remark, as we said, because it shows that the universality of the law of contracting original sin is in fact compatible with the singular privilege of Mary's immaculate conception. So why was it most fitting, Father, that this was part of the divine plan that Our Lady be immaculately conceived? Well, theologians remark that once God the Father chose to uh, that Our Lady be the mother of His only begotten Son, it would have been unfitting if she were ever stained with any sin. This including original sin, uh, which actually deprives the soul of grace and of the friendship of God. And so in a certain way is more unfitting than even venial sin, because by venial sin, one does not lose grace. Original sin, in fact, is a stain that makes the soul ugly in the sight of God, displeasing to God, and obviously would have been very unbecoming if the 
that woman chosen to be the true mother of God should ever be in the enmity of God or displeasing to him. So that's uh, the main uh, the main argument, the main reason. And here I would point out that though this was uh, fitting, the mere absence of stain in Our Lady's soul was not sufficient because holiness requires not only a negative uh, absence of sin, but actually a positive thing, which is sanctifying grace. Now, in the order of providence, one is either in the state of mortal sin or original sin, or of grace, there's no middle term, but uh, it was fitting that Our Lady uh, have an abundance of grace also, that is, that that she be very pleasing to God from the beginning, precisely because she was chosen to be um, the mother of the Son of God. So those are the, the main the main arguments why it was very fitting that it should be so. Well, that makes perfect sense, Father. I mean, how could the mother of God ever be an enemy of God? You know? Yes. Yes. So a few questions come to mind then with this divine favor, Father. So while she was completely free from all sin, was it at all possible for her to be tempted and she just unhesitatingly conquered it? Or does this dogma also mean that she was free from any possible temptations also? Well, good question. I would first remark that this is not uh, lacking uh, the object of the definition, but it's a question that the, the theologians do consider um, as a complementary question. And uh, the answer is that Our Lady, well, first we have to distinguish from merely external temptations, those even Our Lord uh, had, as we know from the Gospel, Our Lord was tempted by the devil, that is merely externally the devil presented things to him, but our Lord was not tempted internally. He was not inclined to them, obviously. So we had to first distinguish that. And uh, But if we are speaking as more commonly, we speak about internal ones, then our lady was completely freed from them because our lady did not have, uh, as we do, a disordered concupiscence. That is, as we know from St. Paul and from experience, we are inclined to evil. And we can overcome that evil by prayer and with great difficulty and, and, and effort, etc. But our Lord and our Lady were not inclined to evil, obviously, uh, but uh, to the good. So they didn't have that um, that uh, pull that we have to evil, to sin disorder. That is precisely what makes for most of the temptations. So no, in that in that sense, our Lady did not have temptations, but she did have great uh, merit because she performed uh, difficult works, uh, notably with nothing about Calvary, right? Mm-hmm. But that's distinguished from, from a temptation uh, properly so-called. So having established what the Immaculate Conception is, we can now look at the various proofs of this dogma. It's quite marvelous to see the different types of Our Lady and Sacred Scripture Father and the various proofs for this dogma therein. One that really stuck out to me personally was Noah's Ark. As Pius IX said in Inefalibis Deus, in speaking of the wonderful privileges, graces, and virtues of Our Lady, he says, quote, These the fathers beheld in that ark of Noah, which was built by divine command, and escaped entirely safe and sound from the common shipwreck of the whole world. Unquote. So, Father, what else do we find of this doctrine in sacred scripture? Well, the first thing I would remark is that, against perhaps some objections, is that 
the dogma of the miracle conception is not enunciated in scripture in explicit terms, as you would see it in the definition, but the bull does cite two important uh, texts, among there, there are many others, but we can focus on two, the two main ones. So two very important texts of Holy Scripture would certainly point to the Blessed Virgin as a recipient of an extraordinary spiritual favor. So an extraordinary grace, and we know by the interpretation of sacred tradition, by the Holy Fathers, etc., the Church, essentially, uh, who gives the right interpretation of Scripture, that that refers to our ladies uh, being immaculate. But by the even by the mere text itself, we can um, we can deduce it, and uh, we're going to see in which way. The first passage is in the Old Testament is Genesis three fifteen, which is called the Proto Evangelium, which means the first gospel, because it was when God for the first time promised the good news of, of a Messiah, a Redeemer. And so in it, God says. I will put enmities between thee and the woman, and thy seed and her seed. She shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. According to the interpretation of the fathers, beginning already with Saint Justin Martyr and Saint Ignatius of Antioch, the Proto-Evangelium foreshadows not only the victory achieved by Christ through the Atonement on Calvary, but implicitly also the Immaculate Conception of His Blessed Mother. As a matter of fact, Pius IX himself explains it so in the bull of the definition, saying that this is an interpretation of the Holy Fathers. Here are his words. These ecclesiastical writers, in quoting the words by which at the beginning of the world God announced his merciful remedies prepared for the regeneration of mankind, words by which he crushed the audacity of the deceitful serpent and wondrously raised up the hope of our race, saying, I will put enmities between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, taught that by this divine prophecy, the merciful Redeemer of mankind, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, was clearly foretold, that his most blessed mother, the Virgin Mary, was prophetically indicated, and at the same time, the very enmity of both against the evil one was significantly expressed. So this means that the Proto-Evangelium applies to our Lord and his mother um, as conquering uh, the devil, um, and that um, can only be um, explained or uh, understood uh, fully by the Immaculate Conception, because if Our Lady had been uh, de defeated by the devil under the power of the devil and his, his chains by, by mortal sin, then that wouldn't, that wouldn't uh, apply to her. And the other passage that Pius IX introduces to is from St. Luke. Could you speak about that a little bit, Father? Yes, it is from the Gospel of St. Luke, from two sets of words. The first is, uh, the angelic salutation itself, hail full of grace, and this taken together with what Saint Elizabeth says to Our Lady, blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Uh, both in uh, Luke chapter 1, 
Uh, and then St. Gregory's uh, greeting uh, presents the divine favor enjoyed by uh, the Blessed Virgin as the highest form of grace consistent with her state, that is, she was full of grace as much as that was possible according to, to her state or fitting to her state. And then we have uh, St. Elizabeth, who is filled with the Holy Ghost, as Scripture says, and hails Our Lady as the mother of my, of my Lord. And she did not give any conventional salutation or greeting to Our Lady, but she wanted to say, Thou art the only blessed one among women, because the fruit of thy womb is the Son of God. So we can reduce it to this. Our Lady is called by St. Gabriel, full of grace. But this wouldn't be true uh, if Our Lady had not from the first instant been completely free from sin. This argument is confirmed, uh, of course, by the traditional um, opposition uh, so often presented by the Holy Fathers between Mary and Eve. We have uh, Pope Innocent III, uh, Hail Mary, he said this to Our Lady, uh, Hail Mary, uh, because through thee the name of Eve is changed. Eve was full of sin, but thou art full of grace. Eve withdrew from God, but God is with thee. Eve was cursed but thou art blessed among women. Through Eve, death entered the world. Through thee, life returned. So this uh, antithesis, this complete opposition, would be meaningless if uh, Our Lady had even for one instant been on the side of the devil and, um, and at the end, enmity with God. Speaking of that traditional doctrine, Father, could we now see some arguments that we find for the Immaculate Conception in sacred tradition? And certainly, now, I would say there are many, uh, many excellent quotes from the Fathers, and since we are going to devote our next episode to the historical considerations concerning this doctrine, uh, I will bring those um, quotes uh, in the next show. Um, with many arguments from tradition. So here I can give an outline of the argument from tradition. There are two great points of the teaching of the early church, the Holy Fathers, and by each of them, even taken by itself, the Immaculate Conception is implied. In the early doctrine concerning Our Lady, we have these two points insisted upon. First, her absolute purity, and second, her position as a second Eve. So the virginal purity of, of Our Lady is compared with the purity of her soul, that is the purity of her body, corresponds to the purity of her soul, and the purity of her soul is seen by the fathers and preached as no lesser than the former. The other point is a very frequent use of a comparison between Christ, who is the father of the world to come, according to Isaiah, with Adam, who was the forefather of the human race. And so in a similar manner, already the early fathers make an opposition between Eve and Our Lady as the two women who were um, had an, a subordinate part or role 
in the first, the first Eve in the ruin of man, the second Our Lady in man's restoration. The word of Eve, they say, seduced Adam to ruin. That is, uh, Eve drew Adam to, to sin by her words. And then the word of, of Our Lady, the fiat, was in the divine decrees uh, very powerful in carrying out the redemption. So essentially, is the fathers see a complete opposition between Eve and Our Lady. But in this comparison, it is implied that Our Lady was completely free from sin, just as Eve was before uh, her fall. And uh, therefore, nothing short of the Immaculate Conception will justify such a comparison in the Holy Fathers. And then we can point out also that the conception of Our Lady was commemorated in the East, in the Eastern Church, by uh, an yearly feast at least as long as the 5th century, the 400s. Now, this event, that is that Our Lady was nearly conceived, and that was what was uh, celebrated, would have been no occasion of giving uh, praise to God if she had been conceived as an enemy of of God and uh, as a daughter of wrath. Um, Since the Church obviously celebrates and uh, commemorates only the events of saints, but not of those who are yet in the enemy, enmity with, with God. So that's, uh, again, that implicitly shows the belief of the Church in the Immaculate Conception. Following along those themes of, um, of the feast and maybe a little bit of the devotional side, we obviously have the feast of the Immaculate Conception on December 8th, which is a holy day of obligation. So what are some ways we can honor Our Lady's Immaculate Conception on its feast and also throughout the year, Father? Uh, good question. Uh, yes, so the first thing is obvious that all genuine devotion, whether it be to Our Lady or to other saints, is ordered and is supposed to be a help in the fulfillment of God's will. It has to help us to draw nearer to God. So then uh, the minimal thing would be to take the ordinary means of prudence uh, to be able to um, to attend mass in that holy day of obligation, and then, but besides that, which is obvious, I would um, recommend, or I think it's fitting, that the family say uh, the family says the rosary together at least on on that and similar days, uh, though, as you know, it is praiseworthy, and really they should try to do this every day, um, but certainly in. A, in a holiday uh, as this one. And besides that, the family members are encouraged to read the good devotional books on Our Lady according to their age and um, capacity. And then throughout the year, I think a key, uh, a key aspect in devotion to, to Our Lady is the daily uh, recital of the rosary. As I mentioned, preferably uh, all the family together but if that's too difficult, at least each of the members should have a sense of, I should say, my daily rosary as part of a everyday devotion. And then, so those will be the main points. And then I will add just as, a, as an extra thing, I highly recommend that people, and by this I mean not only women, but men also, uh, to get the miraculous medal uh, imposed by a priest, and the ceremony takes less than five minutes, 
And uh, just like with the scapular, it lasts for the whole life. Then even if you change your medal. Uh, why? Because this, uh, the miraculous medal is uh, a sacramental, very powerful sacramental, sacramental, uh, very efficacious in giving, obtaining many graces. And this, uh, you might say, devoted to this particular mystery. As uh, listeners might uh, recall, it was revealed by Our Lady to St. Catherine Labore, and uh, both Our Lady and the saint uh, said, um, said that there would be many graces given to those who wear it faithfully. And so I encourage people to, to wear the medal. And again, men also, because it can be worn modestly, uh, can be worn uh, hidden, so there's no problem of, of feeling any shame or anything like that. Especially if you wear the scapula, it's very um, it's very easy just to attach the metal right to the scapular cord. Yes, yes. We want to be intimidated. Uh, some people use like more uh, fancy metals, which is fine, and especially women. But you know, it can be something discreet. Now, for those of us living in the United States and also those lands which belong to Spain. We have a special reason to honor Our Lady under this title as she is the principal patron of these lands. So, Father, is it even more important to us that we have a special devotion to Our Lady under, under this title since she is the patron of our country? Uh, yes, and in fact, I think it's uh, Americans should consider it a great honor, this fact that you have Our Lady under the title of the Immaculate Conception as patron, special patron of your country, and not only an honor, but also a special motive. Uh, to venerate Our Lady under that title. That, is, that should encourage Americans, even if, if not for other reason, to cultivate a devotion to Our Lady's Immaculate Conception. And uh, I think that the fact that there are so many traditional Catholics in this country is to a great extent to be ascribed to the intercession of Our Blessed Lady on their behalf. Uh, and also, I, I do think that it is also through her intercession that the Catholics will persevere in the struggle against, uh, well, against sin, against the heresy, as we are struggling now, against modernism, and also in the struggle to save their souls, and uh, as well, obviously, to preserve Catholicism in general. So I think it's, um, it's an important devotion, certainly for, for uh, American Catholics. It's really blessed to have have our country under uh, under her title like that. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's really an honor. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode. In our next episode, we will discuss the very interesting history of the Immaculate Conception and how it came about through the ages of the Church as men sought to understand this doctrine and was finally culminated in its dogmatic proclamation by Pius IX in 1854. But for now, is there anything else you would like to add in summary before we close out our episode, Father? Uh, well, I will uh, remark for our listeners that um, really the next episode should be listened uh, as well because these two come together. It's just a question of time that we split them, but mm. we are going to see many interesting quotes uh, from saints and doctors, as well as you mentioned the, the history of the definition. So I certainly invite them to, to come also. Well, Father, thank you for your time, and we will talk to you again next time as we continue this series. May God bless you. May God bless you, too. Thank you.